Hey, this is Matt. And this is Tony. And this is What Did We Miss? A podcast where we resolve our pop culture blind spots one episode at a time. How's it going, man? It's going okay. Good. You? Yeah, not bad. Yeah? Not bad. That's good to hear. Yeah, summer's finally here. Yeah. Uh, here we go again, talking about the weather. It's By the time this comes out, the leaves will be changing. Will it? Who knows? I just, I'm just relieved. Last June was... Um, rather disgusting in Rhode Island. It was really, it got very hot, very humid, very quickly, and we've sort of eased into things. It's been, it's been nice. Yeah, a little. Yeah, yeah. yeah. I think you're right. It's funny because I, yeah, you want to fact check me on that? Yeah, I'm going to look that up. <laughs> Let me check my letterbox for how sweaty I was last summer. Oh, it says you're wrong. Type, 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 yeah, type, type, type. It's funny. I think in New England, we have this collective amnesia. Oh, yeah. About the weather. And we're always, especially when you meet people uh, like acquaintances and you're making small talk, it's always just like, can you believe this weather? It's like, yeah, I can. This happens every year. Yeah, I <laughs> should Yeah, I should believe it. I don't. Yeah, but you're right. I think this year is maybe a little subtler, although mm-hmm. today kind of sucked. It was pretty toasty. I'm not a heat person. I'm not either. Uh, I, I prefer, you know, you can, you can always put more layers on. Yeah. Uh, you can only take so many off. I don't For know, sure. unless like you want to go Hellraiser and just start like peeling layers of skin off or something. Oh, is that Hellraiser too, where he's like just all skin? I don't know. I don't remember. I, that's a cool visual though. The guy with no skin. My favorite Hellraiser visual is uh, the Cenobite named CD from the fourth one. I think it's a, <laughs> for, either way. There's there's a there's a Cenobite who used to, who is a DJ who gets turned into this monster with like a CD player in his face and he shoots <laughs> CDs at people. <laughs> Do you have any affection for the Hellraiser series? Uh, not affection. Uh, I did watch through all of them one October, uh, and they're interesting. I think uh, certainly the first handful are are the best of the bunch, and and even there, they're you know on a sliding scale of 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 good and kind of cheesy. Uh, the second one's more of a like weird dark fantasy. I don't remember. It's been a long time since I've watched. Yeah, it. Uh, I remember liking the first two quite a bit. Uh, mm-hmm. I don't have much memory of anything beyond that, and I don't think I've watched like the m- more recent ones. Yeah, they get really bad once. Um, yeah, you want, once you get into like the straight to video phase, they're yeah. pretty abysmal. Um, I, I, I prefer Candyman as far as Clive Barker stuff goes. Oh, uh, yeah, that was him, right? Man. Didn't yes, he write it? I think so. Um, yeah, yeah, Candyman's fun. Mm-hmm. It's pretty, they're, they're doing a new one, right? Yeah, I heard that. Yeah. With uh, Jordan Peele's producing or something like that. Oh, interesting. I think so. Yeah. I picked up, on a whim, all seven Chucky movies on Blu-ray for 20 bucks. Super cheap. Great. I think they're so much fun. And I think the the key to those movies is, you know, it has the same writer. Don Mancini, I think his name is. Let me check. Let me just triple check. Don Mancini. Oh, you were right. right. Yeah. Uh, But he wrote them all and he directed the last two. Not the remake, and a lot of people are up in arms about that because he has nothing to do with it. So it's basically the, the studio had the rights to it and like, we're going to make a Chucky movie without the guy that created Chucky and continues to make Chucky movies for the rest of his life, which is kind of strange. But I think he's still doing his own series. Um, uh, that's I'm not sure where it's going to be on. Yeah, but I think they're a lot of fun and they're kind of goofy. It was funny. So last weekend I went to go see the new Toy Story. Speaking and, of, and I toys and I had suggested life. that we do a double feature of Toy Story four and the new Child's Play. I hadn't even realized it. That. that is really bizarre that they're both in the theater at the same time. You think time. that's intentional? Uh, I don't know. Yeah, I don't know. I mean, when was the last time you went and did a double header at the movies? Uh, Meg and I went on New Year's Eve or the day before New Year's Eve, and we went and saw Mary. Poppins Returns and Aquaman. It was fun. We had a lot of fun, even though Mary Poppins Returns is terrible. Really? Yeah. I, th- I, th- I, I think it just so. popped up on Netflix, maybe, or is going to be soon. Oh, yeah? And uh, yeah. I was curious to check it out. I watched Mary Poppins a bunch when I was a kid, but I don't have a yeah. particular fondness for it. Not, li- not to say that I don't like it. I, I just, um, you know, when they were making a new one, I, I, I wasn't, I was, I wasn't particular. I was pretty ambivalent. Yeah. I kind of was too because I was like, this is probably unnecessary. I like Emily Blunt quite a bit. But I rewatched the original uh, maybe a couple of years ago and it's pretty weird. <laughs> I don't have much nostalgia for the original, but I do like it. But it's funny because, like, you know, 
back to Toy Story for a second, like the first one was a big deal for me. Like I wanted to be an animator when I was a kid and just try to watch as much animated stuff as I possibly could. And, and so when that came out, it was just like, oh, this is otherworldly. This is new. This is, I can't believe this. And I remember uh, I went to the, when it came out on, I think it was VHS. Yeah. Yeah. I remember having the big Disney clamshell yeah. of it. When it came out and I went to rent it at my local video store, they had like, you know, video stores used to have those big cardboard. Yeah. Like the standees. Yeah. They had one for Toy Story with like a buzz with an actual bubble for its head. And oh, you cool. plug it in and, and like the tips of his wings lit up. And I claimed it, so I had that in my bedroom. For... Wait, did you work at the video store? No, or you just... but they knew me because I, yeah, you know, because you were there all the time. I'm a junkie, and I always needed my fix, and that was, you know, the closest one. Yeah, that was Toy Story was huge. I don't know that I ever wanted to be an animator so much, but I was always fascinated with special effects. And when I was really young, I thought that was what I wanted to do. So you know, I was always, anytime there was a a making of special, and this is even a couple years after Jurassic Park, so the sort of ascension of, of computer-generated effects was really big and is really fascinating to me. And, and watching that movie was, yeah, it was a marvel to see it all happen like that. It yeah. was great. The new one has some, the opening sequence, there's a lot of rain, and it's staggering <laughs> that it's all animated. I, I think every movie they've done since has had like that one element. Yeah. Because I remember a friend of mine being like, you got to see this video I found of how they figured out the hair for Monsters, Inc. Yeah, and you see Sully's hair kind of like... Yeah, like glitch like out. moving. And yeah, like, they, you know, they show all like the failed attempts, and yeah. he's just like this weird like blue porcupine. It's all yeah. sort of jagged out. And, and I remember um, the in The Incredibles when they're like, look, we can do hair that's wet. <laughs> right. Like when they're in the ocean, and they're kind of... Bo- the kids are in... in, in um, um, the yeah, and they're bobbing in the water. And yeah. even you, you listen to Brad Bird in interviews, it sounds like they were working specifically on Violet, the daughter. They were working on her hair like really up to the last minute because it was so important for him to have that that attribute to her character that she's always hiding behind it until she's not. And he's like, we got to get it right. We can't. Like this is, it's uh, it's an important piece of, uh, of this character's puzzle. We got we to gotta figure it out. It's really cool. It was an oddly nostalgic week for me because in addition to Toy Story, my parents are they're installing um, air conditioning into the whole house. So they cleaned out their attic. And Ooh, you find some good stuff? My mom found all of my artwork from high school. And so she's like, oh, you should probably come and look through all this. And a drawing board from my grand- that my grandfather made for me. And one of my prized possessions from my youth was how to draw comics the Marvel way. <laughs> and I was just like so excited. And I took that home. And uh, But in addition to all that stuff, Neon Genesis Evangelion premiered on Netflix yeah. uh, last week. Future and, episode because I have never seen it before. Yeah, and I did. I, I went every week. And I'm not going to talk too much about it because, again, we'll probably do an episode on it. Um, yeah, but I mean, it's... It is 20 years old, and, and, sure. and one of the big reasons why I never sought it out prior to it showing up on Netflix is anytime I would think about it or ask someone about it, they're like, oh, it's it's great until the ending just makes no sense and it's terrible. And I was like, that, <laughs> that doesn't sound like an endorsement to me. You know, it's funny. I used to get paid on Friday. I used to be a chef. Uh, I get paid. I go to the video store, and I buy the latest volume in the series, and they would have uh, I believe four episodes per VHS. So it took me a while to get them all because I'd go every just buy one a week, uh, and I'd watch them with my friend uh, Chris Chilton. Uh, we'd go to his house, we'd get snacks, and we'd watch each one. And I remember feeling really bewildered by the ending and hearing that there was a movie that had a bit more of a finite kind of ending, and that's equally be- bewildering. But I also think that. Maybe the series and its ambiguity is partially responsible for why I love that kind of stories now. Uh, It's a big, important thing, just like Toy Story was important, just like the How to Draw Comics the Marvel way. So it's really strange because I'm typically not driven 
by nostalgia. No, you seem, if not immune to it, almost uh, antagonistic I re- against yeah, it. <laughs> yeah, for better or for worse, I can uh, be pretty aggressive about my lack of nostalgia for sure. things. So it's strange that all those things kind of came together. Um, but I think it's partly because of the podcast because the podcast forces us to do the opposite, to open ourselves up to hopefully new things. Right, yeah. We're, the podcast is not responsible for Neon Genesis Evangelion showing up on Netflix. No. We don't have that kind of swing yet. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> not yet. <laughs> um, wait till we get to at least 20 episodes. Oh, yeah, and, sure. And, yeah. and then uh, and then there'll what, be... other, what other beloved anime will appear on Netflix? Uh, Bubblegum Crisis. Sure, there we go. Yeah. Tank uh, Police. Is that one? <laughs> Sure. <laughs> Sounds like it would be. A tank police? Yeah, yeah. it does. Um, yeah, so it's strange. Uh, but it's, it's, it was kind of welcome. It was, it was an interesting week. But also on top of that, um, you know, I was reading this week's assignment. Yeah, we're going to be talking about A Wizard of Earthsea. Uh, Ursula Le Guin, have you read anything else by her previous to this? Um, yes, I read Lathe of Heaven. Oh, okay. I really wasn't very familiar with her. I think it was a name that you hear in certain circles. You know, she was a fantasy and science fiction author. When she passed away in early 2018, I saw a lot of cultural critics write some pretty wonderful obituaries about her and how meaningful and important her work was to their lives. So at that point, I was just like, oh, this feels like something that I've missed. So I read Lathe of Heaven and I, I absolutely loved it. Yeah, yeah, I, I, you know, sort of the same. I was aware of her as this really well-regarded, important author uh, within sci-fi and fantasy. I believe I was assigned to read The Dispossessed in college and didn't, but I ended up reading it a, a couple years ago and loved it. Uh, I read The Left Hand of Darkness last year, which was wonderful, but I hadn't read any of her fantasy prior to, to doing it for this show, although I, I knew that the Sci-Fi Channel had done a miniseries based off of A Wizard of Earthsea. There was... Um, Which she she dislikes. Yeah, quite a bit, it sounds like. And uh, and then also uh, Studio Ghibli did an animated loose adaptation, uh, amalgamation of a few of the different stories called Tales of Earthsea. Which she also dislikes. Right, I heard, and I heard it was, it's pretty low-tier Studio Ghibli, it sounds like. Well, I, I think she, she signed off on, on it on the idea that Miyazaki himself would be directing it no, and it, it was, was a different Miyazaki it was his it was son her, his son yeah um so I don't know I haven't seen it yet uh, yeah yeah I'm not gonna pass judgment yeah um, but uh, you just it sort of put it on my periphery um yeah and I was and you know and then too uh, almost immediately the comparisons to Harry Potter come up because both are about boy wizards with scars who go to a school for wizards which superficially sound very similar, but um, yes. as we'll get into it, it's really uh, the comparison it's, is really apples and oranges, I would think. Yeah. She said in interviews that she's like, oh, I, I really think J.K. Rowling is, is really talented uh, and is a wonderful writer. She takes issue with the fact that people claimed Harry Potter was very original. <laughs> um, but beyond that, she doesn't have any bones to pick with J.K. Sure. Rowling. Yeah, so A Wizard of Earthsea, um, which came out in 1968, is about this wizard named Ged. And it, it's it's a pretty simple story. You could really sum the whole thing up uh, pretty quickly. Let's do that. Yeah, so it's about this wizard named Ged. Um, and he shows some signs of being a great wizard uh, when he's young. Yeah, just by really by listening and observing and repeating things he's heard, he, he sort of... Uh, quickly gets the knack for it. Yeah, and he goes by the name of Dunny. Right. Yes. Well, names are very important. Yes. Uh, and, and that's we're going to talk to that in some depth later, but there is this recurring theme about the importance of knowing and understanding something means the ability to wield power over it or to control it or to um you know, to make yourself more powerful. The idea that you have a, a, a true name and that only your closest friends can know it because it's 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 precious and it leaves you vulnerable. Yeah, the, the whole book is kind of littered with that philosophical underpinnings and a lot of the there's not a ton of dialogue. 
and when there is, it's characters that are kind of musing on these broad philosophical ideas about power and our relationship to the universe, <laughs> mm-hmm. uh, which is pretty weighty for young adult stuff. Yeah, there's a, a few Yodas in this book. <laughs> Everyone's a Yoda. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> so, uh, so Ged early on shows that he uh, has some talent for magic. The, the whole the whole world is a an archipelago, and his his island is attacked, and he he really sort of shows his capabilities by by using his magic to sort of create a fog and protect his town from the Kargish raiders. Yes, yes. Uh, from there, he is he is sort of taken under the wing of of the the wizard assigned to this island. Yeah, his who, name is Ogion. Ogion. Yeah, and Ogion is the one that names him Ged, mm-hmm. um, which is like a rite of passage. There's this great moment when uh, Ged starts learning from Ogion. So I have this passage from the book that I want to read. Though a very silent man, he was so mild and calm that Ged soon lost his awe of him. And in a day or two more, he was bold enough to ask his master, When will my apprenticeship begin, sir? It has begun, said Ogion. There was a silence, as if Ged was keeping back something he had to say. Then he said it, But I haven't learned anything yet. Because you haven't found out what I am teaching, replied the mage. Again, like these little sort of philosophical kind of musings. Similar to like when we were talking about the Wizard of Oz, like how all the characters speak in these kind of aphorisms and riddles, and yeah. Mm-hmm. So, Ged tries to impress a girl by using a spell from one of Ogion's books, and he accidentally releases this shadow, which Ogion is able to put back where it came from, but realizes that Ged has ambition and is impatient, and maybe. There is uh, something to his thirst for more knowledge that is beyond Ogian's ability to keep it reined in. So he sends him to the island of Roke, which is where this school for wizards, and this is really kind of the section where the Harry Potter comparisons really come to the forefront. He he gets there. There is another student who and they have a very like Draco-Harry sort of rivalry. It's not necessarily a class thing, but it's very, um, it's too young uh, ambitious boys trying to one up one another. Are you, so you, are you talking about Vetch? No, not Vetch. Jasper. Jasper. Yes. Yeah. Because he does sort of have a slightly antagonistic relationship with Vetch, but I think it's an, almost like it becomes a mutual appreciation because they're both both talented wizards, mm-hmm. and then they become fast friends. Yes. But then he has an issue with Jasper, who kind of goads him into challenging him to a duel. Yeah, and this is when. The, the story really takes its dark turn and sends Ged out on his, his adventure for the rest of it. Is In accepting this challenge, Ged says that he, he can bring back to life this, um, this woman who had died hundreds of years ago, if not longer. Uh, and in trying to do, perform this spell, he, he resummons this shadow creature that scars him and is driven off by the sort of master of the wizard school who dies in the process of of banishing this creature. I Uh, think that Archmage's name is Nemeral. And when Ged uh, is awoken, quite a bit of time has passed. And there's a new Archmage, and his name is Genshur. And he tells Ged that this shadow creature has no name. So again, we're coming back to this importance of names. Yeah, because how do you... How do you defeat something how, how without do you, a name? Yeah, how do you fight something that you can't know? Yeah, exactly. So Ged goes back to his studies and eventually earns his wizard staff. Right, and then gets an assignment. So he goes to protect the villagers from a dragon. So there's a bunch of little dragons, and I, I believe the book describes them as being kind of old and stupid, and he defeats them easily. But then there's the oldest dragon, and he has a confrontation with this dragon, and in order to defeat it, he has to guess its name. <laughs> and he guesses his name by basically being informed. Like he read about dragons. So he, he's like, oh, you're Yvod. Uh And the dragon's like, oh, yeah, sure. That's my name. And it's only because Ged read about him. <laughs> so it's just like essentially he had the knowledge to defeat him. And the other thing, too, is the, the shadow creature that Ged has unleashed has been pursuing him. And he knows that he can't protect the island from whatever this shadow is and the dragons at the same time. So in exchange for guessing the dragon's name, he barters that the dragon leave the island alone. 
and the dragon tries to you know reward him with with treasure or even the name of what this creature is and yeah he offers to help to defeat yeah. the shadow yeah but instead he knows that he uh if the shadow is pursuing him and he leaves the shadow will leave the island alone and he's strong-armed the dragon into leaving them alone as well all by naming him all by naming him yeah and then he takes off again yeah uh and ged gets chased by the shadow mm-hmm. at this point and he flees to oskill on Oskill, there's like a, there's a magic stone, the the stone of Terranon, uh, which turns out to be yet another trap. Um, yeah. He gets there. Uh, someone who is on the boat with him turns out to be possessed by the shadow creature, and it knows his true name, and it's able to subdue Ged. He wakes up in a castle uh, and is told about the stone of Terranon, which he, he recognizes as being a vessel for ancient evil. So he, he flees by turning into a falcon. <laughs> uh, and he goes home. Yeah, back to Ogion. Yeah, and he almost loses himself too. He he sort of was the Falcon so long that it takes a while for him to sort of become himself again. But then he tells Ogion that you are my true master. I I I know that now. It kind of implies that Ged could only get to this point by learning patience, because he was too in a hurry to learn from Ogion, and that's why Ogion sent him to the Wizarding School on Roke. But Ogion says to him, the Archmage was wrong. The Shadow does have a name. Every living creature has a name. Yeah, and he, and he encourages him to sort of flip the script and to pursue the, the Shadow. And he learns that when it's pursued, it also flees. So he sort of gives chase, and eventually he chases the Shadow to beyond the known world. And there's this very um, intense dreamlike confrontation in the middle of the ocean where it appears to him in the form of various characters he's encountered across his travels. And then ultimately, Ged confronts the shadow with its name, which is his name. And how this all resolves itself is that he and the shadow sort of become one again. There's balance, and he's, he's neutralized the threat by sort of accepting the darkness within himself that, you know, because that's another thing, too. Without light, there is no shadow. This whole idea of balance is a through line for the whole book. I think that's what's what's so interesting about it is kind of subverts your expectations for what a fantasy novel should be. Yeah. Because the primary conflict at the heart of it is essentially a metaphor for accepting the bad parts of yourself. Right. Yeah. Yeah. So we just blew through the, the, whole the, the summary because I think, like you said, the subversions of what you expect from this type of book are really what make it fascinating. And what I found stuck with me in the weeks after reading it, uh, you know, especially it, it is a it's sort of classified as a young adult fantasy novel. And in thinking about the stuff I would like any children I have to sort of be reading and absorbing, it's it's fascinating because unlike a Harry Potter where there is this clear I know that Harry Potter fans would take issue with me saying clear line between good and evil, but you know what I mean? There, yes. Within sci-fi and fantasy, there is, um, there's the good guys and there are the bad guys, and the bad guys are bad because they're bad, and there's no nuance. Mm-hmm. But to have this whole novel be about, there's no big conflict. There, there are politics in the world. She establishes that. Um, like the Cargard are clearly some sort of antagonistic force. But this isn't a book about saving the world from some capital E evil. This is about a young person realizing the power within themselves. And within that power, there is the risk to do harm and to do evil by not understanding yourself or not understanding the true nature of things. And and to sort of that knowledge truly becomes the, the driving force for good or evil in this world. I read from a number of sources that one of the big philosophical ideas behind the book is Taoism. Taoism is essentially becoming one with the unplanned rhythms of the universe, which is, you know, one of my favorite philosophical concepts. This idea that we don't have control and it's good to understand that we don't have control and to accept that. But there is this moment and there's this little passage in the book that I think is really uh, insightful, which talks a lot about that. It goes... But you must not change one thing, one pebble, one grain of sand, until you know what good and evil will follow on that act. The world is in balance, in equilibrium. A wizard's power of changing and of summoning can shake the balance of the world. 
It is dangerous, that power. It is most perilous. It must follow knowledge and serve need. To light a candle is to cast a shadow. Right. It, he's told that after he asks why they just don't turn a rock into a diamond. Yeah. Right? Which is mm-hmm. such a childish question and is based in something very uh, immediate and superficial like uh, greed. Yeah. Oh, well, if we can if we can make anything, why don't we do this? Why don't we just turn this pile of rocks into gems and make ourselves rich? Yeah. If if we can do anything, why don't we just pee or poop anywhere and use our magic to make it disappear? Sorry, I was just throwing J.K. Rowling under the bus. <laughs> but anyway, the back half of the book, every conflict he gets into, he gets out of not because of his mastery of magic, although although he displays that. It's because he's learned something. It's because of the knowledge he's acquired, whether it's defeating the dragon uh, and turning him down from his help or turning down the stone uh, because he knows the he knows what the consequences of of using that stone of what it could unearth. So yeah, he gradually begins to see beyond the immediate threats to himself and understands that there are repercussions that I can't even begin to imagine. So if I'm not careful, if I do something stupid, if I do something out of a a lesser instinct because it'll maybe in the immediate moment benefit or satisfy me, something else is going to happen. It's going to trigger a domino effect that I will be responsible for. That sense of responsibility is huge. He is unleashed to this dark, unknowable thing into the world that's you know disfigured his face and is terrorizing this archipelago and it's all because he wanted to show off which is an i and i i I love that he's just kind of a dick he is such he's such a teenage boy and i don't think and we're making the comparison so why not that's one thing i do from the harry potter books kind of admired is that harry isn't a capital G good guy. He is, he's a young boy and he's kind of a brat. And he's, yeah, he's pompous and he's headstrong. Not, he's not a great student, but I think it's, you know, I, I think uh, talking about Earthsea here, that again, just makes it all the more resonant is that the, the there's just ambiguity everywhere. Yeah, and I think it's so impressive that she does this all in 200 pages. It's strange. I mean, it's not really fair and it, it's not really about how long something is but it is really impressive how she's managed to cram all this these big ideas into just this small little book well and it's it's an economy of language kind of thing too because she she immediately paints not just these wonderful characters but a full rich world without holding your hand through it you know i admit to having to sort of restart this a couple of times just within the first 15 or so pages because it is very dense. And I found that about her work. Left Hand of Darkness really doesn't hold your hand and you're sort of left navigating and piecing together this brand new culture as, as you're going along. And that's it's so challenging, but it's ultimately so rewarding. Yeah, she throws right in the first chapter. She throws you right in there. Mm-hmm. You're in the village. You're with Ged. And we see him starting to use magic and these warriors are coming into the village. Yeah. So right off the bat, she establishes the archipelago and his hometown, that there are wizards, invading forces, all within a few pages. And it's just like you're instantly immersed in this world. And she doesn't hold your hand whatsoever, especially for a book that's ostensibly a young adult book. Right. And I mean, the great part about that is I can imagine myself being... 11 or 12 years old and reading it and just filling in the blanks and having tons of questions. Yeah. And Ged is not central to the politics and the forces that are at play in the world. He's just a small piece in a larger machine. He's not he's not the, the narrative device that everything sort of revolves around, which is such a trope. And speaking of tropes and subverting things, this enemy invading force are described as um as white people and and the the main characters are uh, varying shades of uh, black or she describes get as reddish brown which for a fantasy novel in the 60s was kind of huge and something she's had to fight against because 
she would see the covers coming from the publisher and Ged is portrayed as this sort of pale Anglo fantasy hero and and that's not what he is. I believe that was her main problem with the sci-fi series adaptation is they whitewashed it. Mm -hmm. All the characters are white in that, especially Ged. And she said that was important because she she was trying to subvert things. Mm -hmm. She also said when she started writing it that because she was approached by the publisher saying like, would you like to write a young adult novel? And she instantly said, no, that's not for me. I, I don't think I could do that. And she kind of took a took a beat and realized, well, they're letting me do whatever. And really, I could tell any kind of story. And she knew from fantasy stories, because this is her first fantasy story, that the wizards oftentimes were these kind of otherworldly, all-powerful, almost godlike. And she used Gandalf as a reference. And she's like, well, I want to know how we got to Gandalf. So that's instantly came to her, this story of this wizard who was a kid and, and had to learn to be Gandalf, essentially. And as far as the decision to not portray Ged or or most of the characters in the book as, as white, as was typical of fantasy, this is from a Guardian article uh, that came out in 2005. During summers on the family ranch in Napa Valley, Native American uncles, and that's in quote, made her aware both of the richness of their oral culture and the bigotry they faced. They and the Valley inspired Always Coming Home, which was released in 1985, about post-nuclear Holocaust Californians. White is not the norm for me or equivalent to being human, as is so much of the fantasy I read, she says. I made a conscious choice to make most of my characters people of color. In the Earthsea books, Ged is dark copper red and his friend Vetch is black. I've had endless battles with covered apartments. Gradually, the people on the books are darkening. It's taken that long. So, I mean, it's it was decades of her arguing, this is not the character I wrote. There's a reason for that. And it's, uh, I mean, it's an argument that we're still having <laughs> today. Is which... there like, there's only like two or three black characters in Harry Potter? I mean, they're sort of secondary, tertiary characters. None uh, of the main characters. None of the main characters. color. And I don't believe there's any other, are there any gay characters in Harry Potter? I mean, uh, nothing in the actual oh, text. Not in the text. And that's a yes. whole argument as well. That Which I had that, already brought up uh, obliquely by mentioning the- Yeah, the ever-evolving yeah. canon, which, yes. you know, on the one hand, it's, it's, it's good that she's doing that on the other hand why wasn't it there in the first place yeah. you know it's very it becomes very buried subtext until she yeah, says I, it on twitter i it's, don't buy it i mean because when she passes away eventually and people are still reading the books is there supposed to be some sort of addendum that oh the author claims this character is gay but it's never presented in any of the material well i don't know i, I think that gets into a whole argument about sort of fan ownership i mean the sure. babadook has become this sort of yeah. gay icon yeah um which is you know and there 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 is reasoning and and well thought out explanations about why and so i think that i mean i think that's something entirely different i think if the community was to say oh well i you know these are the clues we've put together and and sort of claiming a character as representative of them i think is fascinating and i i like watching art sort of evolve beyond the creators and the interpretations kind of taking it someplace where maybe the author hadn't intended it because that's what sure. art does. Of but course. no, in this case, she is sort of, she's kind of retconning her thing as she goes. Yeah. And this a isn't lot... the audience, this is her. Right. Yeah. And I think that's what's weird, especially because there was a new uh, Harry Potter adjacent movie that recently came out that had Dumbledore in it. And supposedly the character he had a relationship with and none of that is in the movie either. So, like, still to this day, and she wrote the script for this movie, she can't put that in the book. But again, like, we're obviously digressing from but the But here's subject. an interesting segue. Is, is as progressive thinking as Le Guin was by having people of color be the main characters in her book, it took her a while to catch up with, with growing feminism and the idea of how women are treated in these books. Because in... This first book in the Earthsea series, they flat out say that, like, oh, yeah, women can't do magic. Yeah. And it's either because of fear or because of mistrust or because they, the men just think that they can't. And it was decades before she sort of changed in her thinking and, and reading up on this, because I've only read the, the one book. Same. It's, it's fascinating to watch 
a creator change their stance, not as a reaction to criticism, because she kind of dug her heels in and defended her choice to portray women the way she did. But as her personal views evolved over the years, she kind of went back and made amends. The fourth book in the series is from the point of view of a female character. And that was a deliberate choice to sort of, as it were, right the ship. Yeah, she reveals that there's this whole patriarchal society that was controlling everything, mm -hmm. correct? Yeah. So this is from another Guardian article. Actually, uh, a filmmaker, uh, a director named Arwen Curry, uh, has been working on a documentary. It's it's done now, but she'd been working on it for years. Um, it's doing the festival circuit. I think it's going to be on PBS. With Le Guin's participation? Oh, yeah. Oh, awesome. Uh, and it sounds, it got the impression that she'd been working on it since before she passed. Uh, so this is a quote from that film. Uh, this is, And this is Le Guin talking. What I'd been doing as a writer was being a woman pretending to think like a man. I had to rethink my entire approach to writing fiction. It was important to think about privilege and power and domination in terms of gender, which was something science fiction and fantasy had not done. Le Guin tells Curry, the director, all I changed is the point of view. All of a sudden we are seeing Earthsea from the point of view of the powerless. You know, she talks about feminism and sort of uh, her awakening to it and embracing it and how it's reflected in her work as the decades went on. Another example would be something like uh, The Left Hand of Darkness, which was written in the 70s. The, the big takeaway is that it is science fiction set on a world that doesn't have a binary definition of gender. The inhabitants of this world are all... Uh, superficially male and then have this sort of reproductive cycle where they, depending on who they're partnered with or where they are, will sort of take on female physical characteristics so that they can mate and propagate. The narrator character is, is a an emissary from another world who has a binary sense of gender and sort of exploring that and seeing it through that person's eyes. And it's, it was fascinating to read last year because on top of this gender stuff and it's also talking about uh, a world that doesn't have national borders and then this rising sense of nationalism and fear and warmongering. So it was a lot to take <laughs> in in the summer of 2018. It's what I love about science fiction is that this was decades old and it was just as relevant. That's what it's all about is sort of transposing what are real current big questions into these fantastic worlds, either because it's a new way to explore them, it's a way to get people who might not agree with you to explore these concepts and maybe start to see the world differently. It's all about empathy. And I think the empathy in Earthsea really comes from being more empathetic to yourself and accepting that you have parts of you that you're not going to like, but that's still a part of you. And how do you deal with that? And how do you carry that through the world? And what do you do with it? Back to the left hand of darkness. Yes. The non-gender aspect of these characters, because I, I haven't read the book. Would this book be considered feminist? Or is that a feature of the book? Or is that a bug? What do you mean? Is it well, because, well, I, I mean, in the sense of like, you said that she had to course correct in her actual quote. She well, I, th I think I think within the context of left hand of darkness, um, the the point of criticism was that the characters were all still male. Yeah. That, you know, uh, she's imagining... But isn't it progressive, this idea that... Oh, no. I think I think it absolutely was. And I think, you know, she is considered a feminist science fiction writer. Yeah. Rightfully so. Um, I, I just think... And we've talked about this before, sort of putting um, an artifact from the past into a more contemporary context. And I think the issue there is... Maybe she could have done something that was more androgynous as opposed to the characters were all very specifically male until they weren't. Okay. And there was the the sort of the exploring this that's the space in between what it meant to be one or the other. I think some people took some issue with, you know, how far she was or was not willing to go in that exploration of that as an idea. Mm -hmm. That said, uh it's not something that needs to be necessarily defended. I think it still is it's sure. widely seen sure. as an example of progressive science fiction. Yeah. Well, I mean, it's just that when anytime you research anything about her, one of the, you know, the big things is like feminist writer mm -hmm. <laughs> that pops up. So it's interesting when you take something that like 
there was all this criticism about her having these kind of stereotypical male kind of trope kind of stuff uh, in her earlier work and how she saw this, learned, addressed addressed it, and then changed her writing going forward to the point where now she is considered a feminist icon. Yeah, absolutely. And I think I think there are several avenues that a creator can take when they're confronted with that kind of criticism. They can they can double down on on what they did and defend it until they're blue in the face and not open themselves to criticism. Doesn't that seem criticism? to happen more often than not? Seems like it's what's happening a lot lately. Yeah. Uh, I mean, the other thing you can you can go back and change it, and I don't know that that's necessarily the answer. But yeah. I think I think she did what any true artist has the capacity to do, and that is to make new to things. listen and take it in and apply it to to where you've gone. And because you know, I don't think she, it, I don't get the impression she regrets, no, or no. that she did regret anything that she had made. I think she came to understand where people were coming from and knowing that her beliefs aligned with theirs wanted to maybe evolve with her audiences as she was evolving as a person not even just as as a writer and explore things beyond her scope and i think it's it's telling that someone as progressive as her you know was sort of boxed in by the expectations of fantasy that the first earthsea did have, on the one hand, this progressive element to it, but on the other hand, had this very male-dominant sort of centrality to it that was, and still is, the the sort of uh, the standard for that type of fiction. But she was able to break beyond it. I can't imagine it was easy being a science fiction and fantasy writer and a woman in the 60s. No, not at all. Let's talk a bit about young adult stories sure or the genre of young adult (laughs) um have you read a lot of young adult fiction or science fiction or fantasy i haven't read a ton of fantasy books period yeah no i i haven't read a lot of ya stuff um but i we talked about this earlier but what was weird to me when when i started reading this is it didn't really come across as anything particularly it didn't feel like it was designed for a young audience. Yeah, exactly. And I thought there were some heady things that maybe a teenager could grow with. And as they got older and revisited this book, they would take more from the book as they got older. But I didn't necessarily see that, oh, this is too heady for kids, but also it's geared for kids. But that label of young adult gets kind of, you know, it's used as a pejorative sometimes. I think that's a genre that very easily falls into chasing trends. Yeah. You know, looking at movies that came out. Yeah, I I think I think the Hunger Games sort of stood out in a field of YA stuff that had been previously dominated by romantic fantasies about vampires and shit. Did you read any of those or I haven't. I've seen the movies but I I read the first one and I gave up halfway through the second one. Yeah. I didn't I don't think they're very good. I don't think the movies are I think that there's some interesting ideas, but I don't think the filmmaking is 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 particularly good. Yeah, I mean, I think their movies are fine. I, but I think in the wake there was suddenly a ton yeah. of of dystopian teens saving the world from. There was the Divergent series, which I believe they never finished because right. uh, they increasingly lost money as they went along, and now they're saying that the last one is going to be like a a TV miniseries or something like that without the lead actress. But those those were awful. Uh, we I didn't read any of those, but Meg and I watched some of them at home. And I think the last one was just laughably bad. Kind of on the nose, pontificating about the now, I guess. You know, like sure. this is the movie of now. Uh, yeah, I mean, Hunger Games is very on the nose, but yeah. I find the – the, the leads are charming. Yeah. Uh, are you talking about the movies? The movies, yeah. yeah, yeah. I didn't read the books. Yeah, the leads are, are fine. Yeah. I, know. I I just don't buy the world. I don't... Yeah. I don't... They don't give... Again, speaking strictly about the movies, they don't ever really give you enough to know how things got the way they did. Sure. And it just feels very generic, capital E, evil. Yeah, and I think the games themselves were a little too convoluted. They They have these elaborate kind of plans to kill all the participants and then they always kind of go to shit and it's never really logical I think it's been a while since I've seen them 
But I know when Wizard of Earthsea came out, a lot of people kind of stuck their noses up at it because, oh, it's for be- kids. Because it's for kids. And and I love this little quote from Le Guin where she says that that comment is adult chauvinist piggery. Yeah, yeah. That's, that's great. so great. Um, which is true in the sense like if it's good, it's good. Uh, we were talking about Toy Story earlier, and that seems to be just as much for adults as it is for kids. Right. And I think what make both those excellent examples of sort of all ages entertainment is that it doesn't pander to either. You know, uh, Toy Story doesn't fall into the trap of being a kid's movie with, you know, really kind of obvious shoehorn double entendres to sort of like, I'm going to throw mom and dad a bone while they're sitting through this garbage. That's not fair to anybody. If you think so little of the children that the movie you're making for them isn't actually that good that you have to sort of like give adults these little treats to just make it through it, then why are you doing it in the first place? Same with this. It's not um, Earthsea is not so sort of reductive in its ideas and its world building and its characters that I mean, it, it, I, don't, I don't see how an adult could dismiss it that simply. She said in interviews, too, that she had kind of seen young adult to mean up to 30 because, you know, you are an adult in your 20s, but you're still relatively, I guess, new to it. You're still figuring things out. Even as you get older, you're still figuring things out. So I think that's why she wanted to tell the story about a wizard figuring things out about themselves, because that's what she thought young adult meant. It feels really universal, a lot of what she's talking about. Right. I mean, if you want to sort of instill younger readers with these messages that they're going to carry through into and beyond their adult lives, beyond is the wrong word there. <laughs> but you know what I mean? Into death. Right, right. I mean, it's um, superficially this, I- this idea of Ged confronting himself is very simple and easy to understand, but... It's something that with age and experience becomes more profound. I don't know that I would have had the same takeaway 10 years ago that I I did this year reading it. Or again, like, you know, my 24-year-old self versus my 14-year-old self. And I, I think that's why these stories are so important. And, I mean, it's been almost 60 years, right? When did this come out? In the mid-60s? So, all right. So It came out 60... Came out in 68. Okay, so yeah, so 51. Yeah. And we're still talking about it. And it's not like we, you know, really had to dig deep for this one. This is this is a, a big text for a lot of people who it's, like fantasy. It's strange. It feels really popular, and it's I don't know how I avoided knowing about it. Like, uh, my, I grew up in a family that was obsessed with Lord of the Rings. And my uncle has read the Cimmerillion. Yeah. Is that what it's called? Mm-hmm. And prefers that to all the other books. And that's like as dense as it comes. So it's strange that I have a family of readers that liked science fiction and fantasy. And I didn't really know about this. Well, I mean, I kind of did too. Um, I grew up on Star Trek and Star Wars. But it really, it took a lot for me on my own to dig beyond that. I mean, my dad liked Dune. (laughs) But I think, you know, uh, and he liked Lord of the Rings, too. But we we kind of we kind of didn't go beyond like the big ones. You know what I mean? Yeah, that makes sense. And and something like this, as I'm learning, isn't that far below the big ones in terms of like the, the sort of general perception of it and awareness of it. But I mean, you, you see that now where like the elections next year and there's a lot of candidates that are running. The first point of comparison for a lot of people is, you know, oh, Elizabeth Warren is Hermione. And it's just like, oh, is this our only reference point? So I think that's kind of broadly what you're talking about. Like, you know, you're a kid. It's Star Wars and and Star Trek. And we know those things densely. And we say like, oh, we love science fiction. We love fantasy because we love these things. But maybe we didn't reach outside of that little bubble when we were kids. Not to belabor the point, but that's what we do here. That's what we're always trying to talk about. Like, let's open ourselves up to these things. And I'm really glad that I read this book now and I'm pretty interested to see what happens to Ged now because I know through the next couple of books that she charts his life into adulthood and to even being like an elder wizard. Right. I mean, at the very beginning, they it sort of has this excerpt from a text that exists within the world 
that tells you that, oh, what you're going to read is the story of Sparrowhawk, the greatest wizard that ever was. But that's not this story. For a younger reader, especially, to be like, oh, man, the greatest wizard that ever was. And then planting that seed of curiosity to, oh, when is he going to get there? And then he doesn't. And then, when's the next? I got to get the next book. Sure. I I guess that's that's part of the thing sometimes is like, you know, the monoculture. And it's happened here where we've kind of gotten roped into talking about superheroes maybe more than we anticipated. And that's because we're both. comic book fans and and that's also a massive part of the culture right now so uh it's good to kind of break from that every once in a while and and experience new things even if they're old things (laughs) yeah no promises but you know the least we can do is maybe switch to dc next time (laughs) (laughs) didn't didn't you already bring up doing a swamp thing episode oh yeah and that show got canceled so one episode oof anyway yeah 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 we got to (laughs) resist Resist the urge to to go back to the comfort zone. Yeah. (laughs) So I just wanted to play a clip with a little interview from Le Guin about the influence of the books. And um, yeah, let's play it. What my readers tell me about the Earthsea books, all of them, all six of them, uh, particularly what, what young people tell me, or people who were young when they first read A Wizard of Earthsea, or, or the, the first trilogy, they tell me it helped them figure out their own way through life, that it was somehow useful to them, and that they could identify with Ged or with Tenar with the problems that they faced, and sort of that helped them with their own problems. And th- this is something that it did not occur to me. I didn't know I was being helpful to anybody. I was just telling a story I wanted to tell, which obviously had very deep sources in my own life. Um, and so it is wonderful to be told by your readers that they love your book because when they read it, they needed it, and it kind of came to them like a friend. And that is a lovely a lovely thing to be told as a writer. I love that that idea of like, you know, they needed it. And I'm sure there's plenty of things for you, and, and I know I can name a bunch of things that came about at the right time. Sure. Whether it's Evangelion or Toy Story or Earthsea. Yeah, I, I think we do, you know, that idea that that a story comes to you as a friend. And I, we, we develop these very personal relationships that are extremely one-sided because a book will never love you back. <laughs> um, but no, it is important and it is a comfort and it is, you know, especially if it's, if it's the, the mentor that someone doesn't have in their life or if it is the friend that somebody doesn't have or however you want to look at it. Um, all of these things, whether it's literature or, film or music um, are more important and powerful than there are a lot of times given credit for. I mean, especially when you get into genre stuff. Genre stuff is very easy to dismiss. Uh, genre stuff aimed at a younger audience more so. There is this unearned hierarchy of, of what is and isn't capital A art. Um, for sure. Uh, you see that recently, too, with the way people are talking about horror movies. And there's like been a few new horror movies and there's this strange term that has been used a number of time called elevated horror because they want people to take it seriously uh, and it's unnecessary because horror has been around for a long long time uh, and people have been talking about it whether it's movies or books so and, and that carries over to a lot of young adult stuff too and and even though I have my gripes with Harry Potter you know there's still so it still had this massive impact on the culture and it was always heartening to kind of see young kids with books and i think it's easy for for sort of armchair commentators to 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 dump on something that they don't understand and it's always the first thing you always see is like why don't you read a book <laughs> fuck you <laughs> like it you know yes there is a certain there, there is a certain ritual and a certain fulfillment that comes from reading a book 
that is singular to a book. But the same can be said about any kind of art. Yeah. Yeah, it's always strange to me when someone's like, oh, well, this is superior to... Yeah, yeah. This, this mode of yeah. storytelling is superior to every other mode. Love it. And, I, and yeah, any is sure as shit, there's always... The immediate, like a very quick response to why don't you read a book is, you know, there are shitty books too, right? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Or the people that are always say, well, the book was better. What, no, the in book relations was, yeah, to movies. Yeah. Uh, the book was better. It's like, well, it was different. They're, they're different modes of storytelling. We've talked about that before uh, with adaptations of uh, Pet Cemetery. And it, the book was better, but it wasn't because. It was the book. It was a book. It was because of the failings of the storytellers in the movies. Right. And because of ideas that aren't necessarily visual or wouldn't have been compelling had they been worked into the movie. We talked a lot about his sort of slow spiral and the madness. A lot of it was so internal, short of, who knows, voiceover or something kind of tacky or too on the nose. It's just it's just a different form of storytelling. Yeah, and some stories don't work as well. Yeah, it's when uh, it's when a particular story leans into its uh, not the trappings, but the lean when it leans into the 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 sort of virtues and the the tools that it has at its disposal. Yeah, and and maybe that's part of the part of the problem with adapting Earthsea is that a lot of its power comes from its language. Sure, uh, and you can adapt that, but. It, if you just rely on visuals and the dialogue, it it might be too simple. You might lose a lot of what makes it uh, powerful. I also imagine that this is a tough one to make exciting. And I think I think there is there is a world where there is a really great adaptation of this story that is very slow and very deliberate. But in a world where movies are so loud and big and complicated. Never mind what we're sort of going through now with the last decade of superhero stuff. Could this have stood side by side the Harry Potter movies when they were coming out? You know, or or even or the Lord of the Rings movies. Well, wasn't that the big problem with the uh the Narnia adaptations is that it wanted to be something that it wasn't because those books are really whimsical. The way he writes uh is with some pretty clear, succinct prose, you know? Right. They were, they were, uh, yeah, you're exactly right. They were trying to... His language is what makes the Narnia books great. And they turn the movies into... Lord of the Lord Rings. Lord of the Rings. And I see that... Compro- they, they turned the fucking Hobbit into Lord of the Rings, and it was a disaster. <laughs> yeah, exactly. So, <laughs> um, I, I, he got carried away, and he wanted to adapt the other stories in that universe, and roped them all in and wanted to make the same thing that he had already made instead of, you know, it being leading what it into is. what The Hobbit is and what made The Hobbit great. So, it, unfortunately, if it were to be adapted now, it'd probably lean into Harry Potter. Well, here's here's a fascinating sort of uh, example and assignment we can give to ourselves because I haven't read any of these or seen the first attempt, but HBO is doing His Dark Materials. Oh, yeah. Which... They made the Golden Compass into a film about a decade ago. Did you see the Golden Compass? No, but it was a to- it was a total non-starter for a franchise. Yeah, it's just really bland. Yeah, yeah. But they're doing they're doing a a TV series. Yeah, which as we've sort of talked about, and I think we probably talked about it with Pet Cemetery, maybe with more time telling that story in hour long segments and you know as sensationalist and big and over the top as hbo can go with something like game of thrones they've also displayed that they're willing to let these series breathe and take their time um so that might be a fun one to look at uh, maybe uh you know read the the first book and revisit that movie and talk about it when i think it's coming out in the fall soon yeah because mm-hmm. i think and again, not knowing much about it but i feel like maybe that that might exist in a similar sort of spectrum of fantasy is something like, like Earthsea, possibly. Yeah, I I think so. All right, so so from here, what uh, what would you recommend? What uh, what comes to mind? So I wanted to recommend a comic book called Bone. Oh, okay. Have you ever read Bone? It's been a while, but yeah, yeah. So that's another 
fantasy story that subverts your expectations of what a fantasy story is. And the biggest difference with Bone is that it stars these creatures that are, they're just really cartoony. They're based off of Karl Barks' Pogo. Uh, So they're really hard to describe. They're sort of featureless little white creatures. Yeah, they look like, they look like, Disney characters that have been thrown into high fantasy. Yeah, yeah. And that's what kind of subverts it. I think it's a wonderful story. You could get the collected trade. It's written and illustrated by Jeff Smith, who has this lovely pen and ink style in the book. Um, it's a big, big book, big yeah, story. It was, it was. It ran for years, right? Yeah, it's like years, tw- right? 27 issues, mm-hmm. I believe. But it took him a while to get through it. Yeah, yeah. He started in 1991. I believe he wrapped up in... in 2004 yeah yeah so it took him a while i think that's when i read it i think is when it was done they released that that yeah the first big collection yeah uh but yeah i it i think it's a wonderful fantasy story and a a nice next step after earthsea sure what about you uh i'm gonna recommend avatar the last airbender oh right on yeah i i think uh that's like my brother's favorite show he has a a tattoo of the airbender I don't want to say logo. I'm going to get it wrong. Sure. But they're, they're, they're rune or whatever. Yeah. yeah. Not rune. It's mm-hmm. not a. Yeah. But no, I, um, it, it's been a while and I, I really wanted to revisit after reading this, especially, uh, that, that scene early on in the book where Ged uses fog weaving to sort of shroud the village, uh, and then, and then trick the, the, the enemy forces into thinking that there were, Things running around them. It, it, I mean, just the the term fog bending. Sorry, fog weaving sounds very much like air bending, uh, and similarly portrays. You know, it, it's it's a it's a world that's influenced by Asian culture as opposed to the typical you know Western leaning white characters. So so all of the characters are unless you're watching the movie. <laughs> yeah. So I, I <laughs> here we go. Yeah, the movie adaptation kind of. Uh, Whitewash something that was so explicitly rooted in Eastern cultures. And again, plays a, uh, a lot with ambiguity, too. It's not just the, the magic and the sort of makeup of the world, but, you know, there is, um, there is an enemy force that starts off as that kind of capital E evil. And throughout the series, the son of the, the leader of, of the Fire Nation sort of reveals that he has layers to him. And it's not as clear cut and that this collective nation is not evil. It is simply evil men driving them to do evil things and the sister series that came after it legend of Korra, which i only saw the first season of i haven't seen is Korra. is really it's it's very different but it's it's still really good and you know sort of shows the world moving on from the resolution of the last airbender and yeah they're both stunning and really super well animated and fun to watch and tangentially uh, if you have the means to play through The Legend of Zelda Wind Waker, um, <laughs> it's its own little Earthsea. Did you, which one did you say? Wind did you Waker. Say Wind Waker? Yeah, the one where yeah, the world's been flooded. It's and like an archipelago. They're all Pelican. islands. Yeah. Yeah. Yep. Terrific. Got um, a magic boat. Yeah. Ged had a magic boat. He did have a magic boat. Yeah, which is great. Like, if he gets too tired, <laughs> his magic starts to, you know, go away and the boat starts to fall apart. Yeah. All right. So what are we going to be doing next time? We're going to be talking about Fun Home. Fun Home is a comic book, uh, autobiography by um, Alison Bechtel. Mm-hmm. Uh, oh, so I lied. So we we are sticking with comics, and we're not even we're, we're completely derailing off of superheroes, and we're yes. going uh, full indie memoir. Yeah, it's just a it was a pretty big comic for me uh, when it came out in two thousand six. I was at a point where I was desperately trying to branch out from superhero stuff. Uh, so it's apropos that we're going to talk about it on the show because we are also trying to talk about comic books that are not superheroes. It's called, the subtitle for the book is A Family Tragic Comic. And she gets into her relationship with her father and coming out. Uh, and it's pretty heavy stuff, um, but she's a lovely illustrator. Uh, and I'm excited to introduce it to you. Great. Do you uh, Are you one of those people who who makes a distinction between comic books and graphic novels, or is that some of that um, that that literary uh, snobbery that Ursula Le Guin was talking about? Yeah, uh, it pains me when people say, oh, is that the graphic novel? It's a comic. They're all comics. 
the term was was created by Will Eisner, who is a, a comic book artist who's mostly famous for the spirit. And he was an artist from like the 40s and, and until he died in, in 2005. Uh, but he did a bunch of collected books that he called graphic novels because he didn't have another term for them. They're, it's collected in this bigger book called the God Trilogy, which could be a great future episode because he's a, a remarkable artist. Uh, with just some of the most beautiful pen and ink drawings. And it the God Trilogy is about him dealing with religion and learning about his family and, and religion and his upbringing. But yeah, I, I, I know I know its reputation, and I've mentioned the amazing adventures of Cavalier and Clay on here before, yeah. and that I feel like that aspect of Will Eisner looms large over Yeah, that but book. recently it's been... been uh, the term has been appropriated by mainly Hollywood to sell things <laughs> because you'll see something like a Hellboy movie and it's based on the graphic novel. Really? Yeah. They, oh, man. I think Hellboy did, but I know s- there's quite a few other comic book movies that have done that, and I find that depressing. If because... there's if there's anything that leans into the glory of being a comic book, it's Hellboy. Yeah, for sure. So, uh, I c- you know, usually when Megal at home we'll call them graphic novels and I'm like no they're trades they're they're trades trades yeah they're yep. trade paperbacks they're collections there's six issues in there so but you know we're cool we're yeah gonna... I'm looking forward to it awesome I'll Great. see you next time alrighty thanks for listening to another episode of What Did We Miss you can follow us on Twitter and Instagram and Facebook at What Did We Miss and you can send us an email at what did we miss pod at gmail.com. And thanks as always to the Whatcheer Writers Club in downtown Providence, Rhode Island. You can learn more about them at whatcheerclub.org. And you can follow them on Twitter and Instagram at whatcheerclub.